Welcome to the weekly podcast of Valley Church. I pray that this message will fill you with the hope of the gospel and will help you follow Jesus today. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, visit valleychurchwv.com. Now let's tune in to this week's message. If you would, I'd invite you to turn to Acts chapter 20 today. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 642, assuming they're all the same as the one that I checked out at my seat. So Acts chapter 20, uh, we're going to be in verses 16 through 38. We're going to continue our scent series. I want to give you a little bit of an overview of what we're going to read before we read it. In our text today, we're going to find that the Apostle Paul has been unexpectedly sent to the elders of Ephesus. I'm going to include verse 16 in our reading because I want you to see that Paul had no intention of another face-to-face meeting with the elders of Ephesus. Paul, nearing the end of his third missionary journey, he had planned to sail past Ephesus down the coast of modern-day Turkey, across the Mediterranean, and to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. But what we're going to see is that in the Lord's providence, Paul finds that the ship that he's sailing on is docked in the port city of Miletus. And Miletus is only 30 miles south of Ephesus. And not only that, but it appears, and you'll see as we read the text, that the Holy Spirit had impressed it upon Paul's heart that he would never see these elders of Ephesus again. So Paul sends to Ephesus to call the elders down to Miletus, And here in Miletus, Paul is given one last opportunity to have a face-to-face conversation with the elders of Ephesus and give them a word of encouragement and exhortation. Now, interestingly, this speech in Acts is the only speech of Paul's in Acts that's not evangelistic or a defense of some sort. What we see in this speech today is just a word from a pastor to his flock. And so it's a word of encouragement for the church. So here in Miletus, face to face with the Ephesian elders, Paul reminds them about the three years that they'd spent together. He reminds them how he had taught them the gospel. He reminds them how he had been an example to them. He reminds them how he had not withheld anything from them that was profitable for teaching. And most importantly of all, Paul reminds them that he had taught them the whole counsel of God. And after Paul reminds these brothers of all the things that he had taught them over three years, he commends them to the Lord, to the gospel, and passes on the responsibility to these elders of cultivating and maintaining a healthy church. So let's read Acts 20, verses 16 through 38. I would encourage you to keep it open to this text because I'm going to jump around a good bit uh, through my sermon, so it'll be important that you have it open on your lap. So Acts 20, 16 to 38. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, 
testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit has testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. I want to pray for us. I'm going to just pray a prayer that uh, Paul prayed for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 3. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you would do for us what Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, that we, being rooted and grounded in love, would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen. Now let's put ourselves in Paul's shoes for a few moments so that we can see the significance of this event from his perspective. Paul is standing face to face with the men that he is leaving to care for his church plant in Ephesus. And Paul had built this church up, literally from the ground up. We know by reading Ephesians chapter 2 how Paul had characterized these very brothers three years earlier when he had met them. These very brothers, he said, were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were sons of disobedience, and they were children of wrath. But through Paul's witness to Christ, and through Paul's persistence in building them up with the Scriptures, And by Paul being a Christ-like example for them, over three years, these brothers had been made alive, they had been saved by grace through faith to do good works, and these brothers who had once been far away from Christ had now been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Paul 
had built these men up from the ground up by teaching them the full counsel of God and being a day-in and day-out Christ-like example for them. And now, having established them as the elders in the church, Paul is going to sail away, and he's never going to see him again. So it must have been a pretty profound moment for the Apostle Paul. Um, Originally, he had been tearing down churches, but now he had built up a church, and he's going to leave it and never go back to it again. Now, I imagine that it was one of those moments for the Apostle Paul that he would describe as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He's sorrowful that he's never going to see these brothers again, but he's rejoicing as he reflects on how the gospel can transform lives and communities. Amen? And I think we see at the heart of this exhortation, Paul is simply reminding these brothers of everything they had been taught over three years, and he's pointing them towards characteristics that will keep the church in Ephesus healthy. Specifically, I think we can see four characteristics of a healthy church that Paul points them to. And you can bring those up. You see them right there on the screen. Paul points them to being gospel-centered. He points them to being grounded in Scripture. He points them to be being guided by Christ-like leaders. And lastly, to be generous. Now, I have an example of being challenged with these characteristics in my own life. Years ago, I was asked by a pastor if I had ever been discipled. And at first, I thought that was an odd question because he knew I grew up in the church. He knew there was never a time that I wouldn't have admitted that Jesus is my Savior. I'd sat through countless sermons. Um, I'd read some scripture. But through our conversation, I realized... No, I've never been personally, intentionally discipled. So I agreed to meet with this pastor for a season of discipleship. And it was during our first discipleship meeting that I could see that he was pointing me to the importance of these characteristics. And he was looking for these characteristics in my life by asking me a series of questions. As we started out our first discipleship meeting, he says to me, he says, Doug, what is the gospel? First thing he asked me. And you know what? I was completely unprepared to explain the gospel. I mean, I knew the bits and pieces, but I didn't know where to start. I didn't know where to end. I didn't really know how they all fit together. So here I was, a lifelong church attendee, and I couldn't articulate a coherent and logical gospel presentation. So embarrassingly, I went on and I muttered some loose, incoherent gospel. But I was really embarrassed at my inability to articulate it. So it was found out that day very quickly in our first discipleship meeting that I wasn't as gospel-centered as I thought I was. And the questions didn't stop. Next, he asked me, he says, Doug, the things that you just told me, he says, can you show them to me in the scripture? So 10 minutes into my first discipleship meeting, I'm over to. I couldn't show them to him in the scripture either. So it was found out very quickly that uh, I wasn't as grounded in scripture as I thought I was. Now, to his credit, he did over our many months together. He graciously helped me to formulate a gospel presentation. He showed me where these things were in Scripture. But this one, this first meeting, he had one more question for me. And the last question he had, he says, Doug, he says, tell me about your relationship with your wife and your kids. And so finally, the light bulbs were starting to come on for me. I could see what he was doing. He was gauging the health of my Christian life by examining if these characteristics were present. So looking back now, I'm very grateful for that uncomfortable experience because it really did propel me to take seriously 
that these characteristics were formed in my life. And as we go back to the text, the Apostle Paul knows these same characteristics. And so as he's standing before these Ephesian elders, getting ready to pass the responsibility on to them of cultivating and maintaining the church's health, he points them to the exact same characteristics. So the first one you can see on the list there, gospel-centered. Paul knows, first and foremost, that if this Ephesian church plant is going to remain healthy, they must remain gospel-centered. At least three times in the text, Paul points to the central place that the gospel had in his ministry. In verse 21, we're going to jump through a couple verses here. In verse 21, Paul reminds these brothers how he had testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 24, Paul admits that the only value of his current life was that he was able to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And then in verse 32, Paul looks forward to the future for this Ephesian church and commends them to the word of God and his grace, which is just another reference to the gospel. And Paul does this. Paul points them to the central place of the gospel because Paul knows the dangers that are ahead for this Ephesian church. And as we read, I hope you noticed that much of the context is in the context of a warning. Paul knows that as soon as his ship sails away, that wolves are coming in. And Paul said that's not only from outside the church that these wolves are coming, but they're coming from among your own selves, he says. And what we know about wolves, how do wolves come to church, and what do wolves usually bring to church? Wolves come looking like sheep, but they show up with a different gospel. And so Paul knows these things, and Paul wants them to remain healthy, and Paul knows that wolves are most successful when shepherds and sheep are not gospel-centered. Amen? So the dilemma for these elders after Paul's departure is the same dilemma for us. How do we become and remain gospel-centered? Paul says in verse 21, he preached repentance and faith. Is that all Paul preached? No. Paul doesn't mean that we just need to simply believe and repent, and then just go on about our day-to-day lives. Repentance and faith, they are certainly central elements of the gospel. They're the doorway of conversion. They're the right response to the gospel message. But here in Acts 20, repentance and faith are simply summary statements of a much larger teaching that Paul had, teaching us things about who God is and who man is and what the work of Christ accomplished, and then what is our right response to his work. So repentance and faith simply summarize Paul's larger body of teaching. So when the Apostle Paul thinks gospel-centered, he has something much larger in mind. Remember, he's speaking to the leaders of the church, these elders who are responsible for cultivating and maintaining the church's health, brothers that he had spent three years himself teaching. So for Paul, Here's what it means to be gospel-centered. It means to know the whole counsel of God. Look at verse 27. Paul says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. 
So to be gospel-centered is to have an understanding of the whole counsel of God. Doesn't that sound intimidating? You have to know the whole counsel of God? Yes. But it's not intimidating if you know what Paul means versus what Paul does not mean. So first, what Paul does not mean by the whole counsel of God. Paul does not mean that we need to know about the Lord and about Scripture fully. That's unrealistic. It's impossible for any of us, including the Apostle Paul. So then, what does Paul mean by the whole counsel of God? Here's what he means. The whole counsel of God is the whole plan of God as seen in redemptive history. From Genesis to Revelation, which is centered upon the work of Christ, which truths are then lived out in community by the church until Christ returns to create a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's what it means to have an understanding of the whole counsel of God. It's having an understanding of redemptive history. So let me encourage you that the whole counsel of God is knowable, it's teachable, and it's also very practical for living. And it's not far off that we have to go somewhere and find it and bring it back. The whole counsel of God is very accessible. I mean, you're all holding it right there in your hands. It is in the Word of God. That is the whole counsel of God. And that the whole counsel of God is knowable, it makes sense when you consider the goal of Paul teaching the whole counsel of God. It is to build us up into Christ's likeness. In verse 32, Paul says that the word of his grace, that is a reference to the gospel, that is a reference to the whole counsel of God, which is able to build you up. To be built up is to grow in Christ's likeness. It is to become sanctified. So the goal for Paul and the goal for us is that Christ would be formed in us, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ unto full maturity in Christ's likeness. And learning and applying the whole counsel of God is the pathway to that goal. Amen? So that's a lot of information. I'm going to try to summarize it here for you in one paragraph. All right? So here's how it works. A healthy, gospel-centered church grows in maturity by learning the whole counsel of God. Because when we're taught the whole counsel of God, the Spirit of God is taking the Word of God and is conforming us into the image of the Son of God. That's right. Amen? Yeah. That's, that's what I'm saying in in a few sentences. So then, to become and remain gospel-centered, the solution simple. We just need to know what we believe. We need to know the Scriptures. We need to know the whole counsel of God. But, as I demonstrated with myself earlier, and which has been proven through many recent studies and statistics, I can confidently assure you, most are not gospel-centered. So then what's the application for us? It's simply to ask yourselves, are these characteristics true of me? Do I know what the gospel is? Can I articulate it? Can I show it in Scripture? Do I live out the truths of the gospel in my closest relationships first? Amen? So that's the goal. So, 
If our goal is to be gospel-centered, where do we start? Well, there's only one answer, and that leads us to the second characteristic. We need to be grounded in Scripture. We need to be like Paul. Paul was a man of the Word. He was proficient in Scripture. He understood the whole counsel of God. He could point others to it, and he could teach them in it fully. And he's telling the elders at Ephesus, and he's telling us to do the same thing. Amen? So twice in the text, Paul says there was something that he did not shrink back from. And in both instances, what Paul did not shrink back from was laying out the Scriptures in their entirety before these disciples in Ephesus. Look at verse 20. We see it here first. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Can you think of another time when Paul paired together profitable and teaching? It was when Paul wrote a letter to Timothy when Timothy was pastoring at Ephesus a few years later, reminding Timothy of the importance of being grounded in Scripture. And he wrote it in 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. Paul says to Timothy, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And here it is paired together. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then the second reference to Paul not shrinking back from Scripture is in verse 27, which we've looked at several times already. Paul says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And, we, and I told you this already. Where is the whole counsel of God? It's right here in the Word of God. Amen. So, remember, Paul's greatest ministry in Ephesus was ministering the Word. He did not shrink back from Scripture. So I thought about what does this look like in Paul's day-to-day life in Ephesus as he spent three years doing it. What does it look like? Well, I imagine Paul in public and going from house to house, lugging his Torah scrolls around, He'd come in, he'd clear the table off, and he would point to texts like Deuteronomy 8.3. And he would tell the disciples, see right here, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then he'd flip back a few sections, and he would point them to Deuteronomy 6. And he would say, see right here, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Then he would go forward to Leviticus And he would tell him, see, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he would begin to teach him about Christ, and he would get Isaiah out. And he would go to Isaiah 53, and he would teach them that, surely Christ has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. And so then his disciples would say, Well, what did we do then, Paul? And he's like, You repent, and you believe, and you live by faith like Abraham. And he would turn back to Genesis. And he would say, See, right here, Abraham was a man of faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul did this day in, day out, month after month, teaching, correcting, training in righteousness, equipping the saints for the works of ministry, 
pointing them to the whole counsel of God from Scripture. And that pattern continued for three years. Amen? So, if our goal is to be grounded in Scripture, where do we start? Again, it's a simple answer, just like the first one was a simple answer. We must begin by just simply immersing ourselves in Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole canon, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. We need to be like Ezra the priest. I was trying to think of a good example of somebody that was grounded in Scripture and who set themselves to learn the Scripture. If you don't know Ezra the priest, he was a priest that came back from the Babylonian captivity. And upon his return to Jerusalem, he recognized that the people of God didn't possess these characteristics. So Ezra, what did he do? We learn it in Ezra 7, verse 10, that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules to Israel. So if we want to be grounded in Scripture, three simple things. Study it, and then do it, and then teach it to somebody else. Amen? Well, let me encourage you in case you feel a little bit overwhelmed. I said you need to know the whole counsel of God. I said you need to know Genesis to Revelation. So let me encourage you that none of these characteristics happen overnight. These characteristics take a long time to develop of constant day in and day out being intentional and purposeful in developing them. Developing these characteristics for Paul and these Ephesian brothers It took three years. So if we were to set ourselves today to be grounded in Scripture, I can't imagine that it would be much less for us. Amen? So we've seen that in order to maintain a healthy church, healthy Christian life, we need to be grounded in Scripture, gospel-centered. Next, Paul reminds these brothers that they need to be guided by Christ-like leaders. And Paul knows that building a healthy gospel-centered church comes with much opposition. He pointed to the wolves. So in order to persevere in building up the church, Paul knows that they need Christ-like leaders. They need examples to follow, and they also need people that can come alongside them and lead them on the way when the way gets difficult. Then Paul knows these things, and he knows that this Ephesian church is only going to remain as healthy as the elders standing before him continue to lead like Christ. So Paul finds it crucial one last time in his face-to-face meeting to remind them like he reminded the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Look at verses 18 and 19. Here Paul points to himself as an example to follow. And we see in these verses the character of Christ-like leaders. Paul says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through plots of the Jews. So we see Paul's Christ-like leadership when we notice in what environment Paul's Christ-like character could shine the brightest. And it was in the midst of trials, tears, and plots against him. But notice Paul's character in the midst of these many difficult situations. And this is the key to Christ-like leaders. He remained a humble servant. So, 
Paul imaged Jesus well because Paul remained a humble servant over these three years through many difficult circumstances in Ephesus. And so let me remind you that like everything else, developing Christ-like leaders takes time. It takes a community, it takes trials, and it happens over a long period of time. Now, after Paul had reminded these brothers how he had been an example to them and how he had built them up in the Word of God, he points them back north to Ephesus and he tells them essentially, go do the same thing there. Look at verse 28. Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Paul is sending them back to Ephesus to carry on the same work that he had done for these elders. Now I want you to notice one more thing about character. And it's that Christ-like character is not just the goal for the Apostle Paul. It's not just the goal for these Ephesian elders. It's not just the goal for leaders in the church. Christ-like character is the goal for everyone who has come to faith and repentance in Jesus. Amen? When Paul says to the elders to oversee and to care for and to shepherd, he only has one goal in mind, and that is building the church up in the likeness of Christ and preparing them for ministry. And we see this most clearly in Paul's letter to the Ephesians that he wrote to them a few years later when he was reminding them of the importance of being guided by Christ-like leaders. And we see it in Ephesians 4, verses 12 and 13. Paul says the purpose of Christ-like leaders is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the fullness of Christ. So we're all striving together for the same goal, Christ-likeness and doing works of ministry. Amen? We've got one more characteristic, and the last characteristic is that a healthy church would be generous. And generosity is really the fruit of those first three characteristics. Look with me at verse 35. Paul says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So in Paul's last words to the Ephesian elders, he reminds them, at the end of the day, brothers, we're servants of all. Amen? If we're truly gospel-centered, if we're truly grounded in Scripture, if we're truly like Christ, then we will be the most generous people around. We'll be the most generous with our time, with our resources, with our finances, with our compassion, with our joy, with our love, with our peace. We'll be the most generous with all those characteristics of Christ. We'll just simply be like Jesus, who was the most generous of all. Amen? He is our example of generosity, and we see his generosity most fully in his, servant, in his, in his servant-like character on the cross. Let me read Matthew 20, verses 26 through 27 for you. It's a good picture of Jesus' generosity. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we're all here worshiping today because of the generosity of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins and the life that he's given all of us. So, in closing, I just want to remind you that if you see any gaps in your character according to these character traits, just strive to close that gap. If you're not gospel-centered, learn the gospel. If you're not grounded in Scripture, start reading the Scripture. If you have character that in your life doesn't reflect Christ, repent of it and just move on. And if you need help in any one of those categories, uh, there's plenty of people around that are willing to help you in that. And second, I just want to say that when Virginia and I came to Valley Church a few years ago, we were looking for a church that possessed these characteristics, and we found that they were already at work here. So that's a good thing. Um, And lastly, um, above all, my hope is that you would just love the Word of God. And I know that if you love the Word of God and you delight in the Word of God and you set yourself to know the Word of God, these characteristics just develop naturally in your life. So, anyways, set yourself to learning the Scripture and and you'll develop these characteristics. I'm going to pray for us and then I think the worship team is going to come up and then we're going to celebrate... Some baptisms. It's exciting. Lord, we thank you for this time and your word. Lord, we thank you that uh, you've given us your word that we can examine ourselves against, that we can grow in the knowledge of you, and we can grow in Christ-likeness. So Lord, I pray that as we set to do these things and to develop these characteristics in ourselves, Lord, we thank you for your spirit who helps us do that. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Valley Church. If you were impacted by today's teaching or made a decision to follow Jesus, we would love to hear from you, pray for you, and walk with you. To connect with us, visit valleychurchwv.com. There you will find resources on following Jesus and information about how to partner with us here at Valley Church as we seek, serve, and send disciples of Christ.